Our outline today is rather simple. We have three points. Jesus, the power of God, Jesus, the wisdom of God, and on the basis of these things, all glory belongs to Jesus. We have one slide for each of these points and no subpoints listed on the slides. So our projectionist will have an easier time as well. In the ancient world, as well as our world today, everyone is looking for either wisdom or power, or both. Our text points how the Greeks are seeking after wisdom, the Jews are seeking after power. If you look in New York City, you see that in a microcosm, you see the world pursuing wisdom and pursuing power, pursuing gurus and teachers and philosophies and ways of life and answers to their questions on the one hand. And then on the other hand, you see people who are just seeking practical answers. I don't really care about the philosophy. I don't care about the behind the scenes stuff. I just want to know what works, what can help me with my problems. And so that current problem is the same as the ancient problem, which is this matter of power and wisdom. Our text teaches us that Jesus is the power of God and the wisdom of God. So this brings us into our first point, point number one, Jesus is the power of God. Now, in case I misspeak or get my verbiage jumbled up, let me just say up front that there is a synecdoche going on here, and that is where you use a part for the whole. So your, our text refers to the cross being certain things. For example, look in verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of wisdom, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. The cross of Christ is not referring to the piece of wood. It's referring to the concept of the death of Christ. And so throughout the rest of this chapter, verse 18, for example, says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. The message of the cross is not exclusive. Well, it's not, first off, referring to the wood at all. It's not about the piece of wood. And it's also not just talking about his death but it is the entire act of the substitution of Christ in the place of sinners. So it's both the pouring out of the wrath of God on him, his death, his resurrection, that whole cross scenario is what is being referred to. And that's why I'm alluding to the synecdoche where you use part for the whole so that we could say, you preach the cross, you preach Christ. You preach Christ, you preach the cross, and you can use those terms interchangeably, and I will, especially when I'm thinking about other elements of the message while speaking about that at the same time. Spurgeon very famously said that he could count at least 12 different thoughts going through his mind at the same time while preaching. I cannot do 12, but I often have two. So, Jesus, the cross, Jesus, Parentheses, the cross is the power of God. Verse 18, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those or to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. So, the crucifixion. 
The crucifixion of Jesus is foolishness to the lost. You might hear people say, I like Jesus. I don't have a problem with Jesus. I like the moral teachings of Jesus. But I don't like some of his ideas. I don't like all of his ideas. I don't like some of his more extreme views. You must recognize that Jesus claimed to be God. People might like the Sermon on the Mount, turn the other cheek, love your neighbor, feed the hungry, that sort of thing. But the fact is, Jesus did not just give moral teachings, but those moral teachings were part of a larger program, which is the mission of redemption that he came to accomplish. And so that involved him preaching and preaching a certain message for a certain purpose, namely to preach the law, to show you your guilt and your sinfulness, and then to show you the only solution, which is Christ himself. Jesus claimed to be God. In Mark, Mark chapter 14, verses 61 through 62, again, the high priest asked him, saying to him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. That word I am is the famous I am that I am from the Old Testament in Greek. It's ego, me. It's a very, very famous, very powerful reference to the eternally existent one, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Yahweh himself. Jesus says, ego, me. He says, I am. And you will see the Son of Man himself, which is another divine name from Daniel chapter 7, The Son of Man does not refer to his humanity, but refers to his divinity. The Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. This is an explicit claim to divinity. This is also the reason why in the verses that follow, they pick up rocks to stone him to death. Because they recognize this claim to divinity, this claim to deity, and if it's not so, and they don't believe it is, that's blasphemy. Why? Because he claimed to be God. So Jesus claims to be God. People like the moral teachings of Jesus, but they don't like his claim to divinity. Well, why is that? Well, there's some implications to that. If Jesus is, in fact, God, well, there's a lot of implications for that, one of which would be that his teaching actually has authority. He's not just a guy. He's not just some person who says things. But he actually has authority. He's actually the sovereign ruler of the universe. So that's a problem if you aren't down with Jesus being God. Secondly, Jesus claimed equality with the Father. He said, I and the Father are one. Thirdly, he claimed eternality. He said, before Abraham was, I am. Again, the same word, I am, this eternally existent one. Beyond that, Jesus received worship, even though only God is to receive worship. Jesus also claimed exclusivity. Not just saying, I am one of many gods, one of many right paths, 
but rather he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. The first part of the verse is strong enough. It could stand on its own, but he emphasizes it more so. I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's clear enough. But he presses in and says that no one comes to the Father but through him. That means that all other world religions are wrong. And if you follow them to the end, you will not go to the Father. You will face God in his wrath and judgment at the end. Beyond these things, beyond Jesus claiming exclusivity, he preached judgment and hellfire for those who do not repent and believe on him. He said things like, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Again, exclusivity, universality. He's saying, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Everybody, not just some, you will all perish unless you all repent. You, as an individual, must repent. You must be reconciled to God. You don't get an exception. You don't get a get-out-of-hell-free card because you're a very nice person who has a nice smile. He says in the, the, the verse following the most famous verse traditionally, which is John 3.16, John 3.17 says, he who does not believe in me is condemned already. Remember John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. But if you don't believe in him, you're condemned already. You're standing condemned by nature in your natural disposition just because you exist. That's why you must be reconciled to God, which is the whole point of the Christian religion, is to get people reconciled to God. So if you don't believe on him, he says, Jesus says, you are condemned already because you have not believed in the only begotten son of God. Beyond this, Jesus foretold his own death. He says, it is written, the Son of Man must suffer many things. He must be rejected by the elders and chief priests and be killed and on the third day rise again. He also preached his own resurrection, not only in the verse I just said, but in the next verse, which I'm about to reference, he says, destroy this temple while clearly pointing to himself and in three days I will raise it up. We know this because in parentheses, in the following words, the author of scripture, whoever's writing this, says he was referring to himself, his body. So Jesus is preaching that he is the only way to the Father, that he has come to reconcile us to himself. If you don't believe on him, you are headed for hell. And after he dies on the cross, he will rise from the dead. He preaches all of this And this is the message that is summed up by the expression, the message of the cross, the preaching of the cross. And it is what it means to preach Christ. When we say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that's what we're referring to. We're not referring to be a nice person, love your neighbor, um, feed the hungry. None of those things are what we're referring to. But this message is foolishness to the world. That's where people start getting their hang-ups. Ask your Muslim cab driver, 
hey, what do you think of Jesus? They're like, oh, I like Jesus. Isa. Oh, well, tell me what you like about him. See, they don't believe he died on the cross. They believe that someone else that looked like him died on the cross. They don't believe that he is the eternal, only begotten son of God, that he is the divine second person of the Trinity. No, they don't believe that. But they like the idea of Jesus, a prophet, a good teacher, a moral, a moral person who set a good example for others. It is the same in any alternate religion. They like certain things about Jesus, but they don't like Jesus for who he is. So the preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but for us who are being saved, it is the power of God. This word being saved, we must reference here, being saved. Salvation has past, present, and future tenses in the Bible. So those who are saved, who are being saved, and those who will be saved. If you have been saved, you are still currently being saved. And if you are still currently being saved, you will be saved in the end. We refer to this with expressions like justification, which is a once-for-all declarative act of God where he legally, judicially counts us righteous. He imputes the righteousness of Christ onto us and places our sin onto Christ. It's a legal transaction. It's paperwork in heaven that is taken care of for those who are in Christ. So that's justification. But then there's sanctification, which is you being saved in space and time. You becoming more like Jesus. And then there is glorification, which is you will be saved in the end. Notice justification is at the beginning. It's not at the end. Glorification is at the end. If you mix this up, you get some kind of Roman Catholic doctrine like final justification, where at the end you have to see how good you were to see if you're good enough to get in. And evangelicals preach final justification too, but they're not soundly evangelical. So this doctrine of the cross, this preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. What does that mean practically? Practically, that means the cross is everything for God's people. Remember what Paul said in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God to salvation, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. In other words, the whole world, Jew and Gentile, because that's what makes up all people groups. So the gospel is everything for us. It is the power of God for us who are being saved. And so it compels us to not be ashamed of it because we actually believe it. This brings us into our second point. Our second point is Jesus is the wisdom of God, or the cross is the wisdom of God, which is the, the large central body of this message. Um, I've put the verse 30 on the screen, but it really goes from verses 19 through 30. Um, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, 
The world through wisdom did not know God. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews assembling block and to the Greeks foolishness, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of this world to put to shame the to put to shame the wise, and that God has chosen the weak things of this world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of this world and the things which are despised God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. On this previous point that Jesus is the power of God, leading into Jesus being the wisdom of God, um, I was talking to a very prominent church planner in the city about eight years ago, probably. Um, and he, we were talking about philosophies of church planting and ways of doing ministry and, and what set of ideas to work with in order to construct a church, basically. And um, talking about Reformed theology and, and um nine marks, if you've heard of that, and different philosophies and things. And and he said that um, New Yorkers don't care about your theology. New Yorkers don't care about uh, your pragmatic things. New Yorkers care if you have the power of God on your life. And I was like, oh, interesting. Now, no surprise, this man is charismatic. But here's the thing. What is an outpouring of the Holy Spirit? What is the work of the Holy Spirit? When the Holy Spirit comes, what does he do? What does it look like? We have the answer to that in the Bible. The Bible says, and when he, the Holy Spirit comes, he will glorify me. So that's the reason why theologians call the Holy Spirit the the silent member of the Trinity. He doesn't shine the spotlight on himself. He shines the spotlight on Christ. So what does the power of God, the power of the Holy Spirit look like? It doesn't look like a manifestation of the Spirit. It looks like the glory of Christ. So where you see Christ being preached and Christ being lifted up and Christ being elevated, that's a manifestation of the power of the Holy Spirit. That is literally the work of the Spirit. That's what the Holy Spirit does. That's an extra thing that I just thought of. So let's go. Keep moving. Point two. Jesus, the cross, is the wisdom of God. What is the wisdom of the wise? Verse 19. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. So this is the problem of people who like to think. There are the people who like to experience and there are people who like to think. And the people who like to think are trying to solve the world's biggest questions. Who am I? Where am I going? What is the meaning of life? What is the purpose of things? So they like to sit and ponder. And they've been doing this since the beginning of time. Developing systems of thought and philosophies. The scripture says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Who are 
the wise in our world today? Well, it depends on who you are, who you view as wise. A lot of conservatives and conservative secular people like guys like Jordan Peterson. He's a philosopher. He has a lot of answers to things, or at least he paces back and forth um, postulating things. But what is, what, what is, who is his guru? Well, it's Carl Jung. That's the, the guy he keeps going back to. So he has this, this uh, bizarre hermeneutic. I forget the word I'm trying to think of right now. But he, his view of, of scripture is existentialist. He's not reading the Bible for what it says. He's reading the Bible for what a, a dead philosopher says is sort of this hidden meaning behind the text. If you're not on the right, if you're on the left, you might like a different set of philosophers. Well, you definitely would like a, diff- a different set of philosophers who have their own ways of interpreting reality. Our text says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Now, we have something better than these things. Where do we get wisdom from? We get it ultimately from God. And we have the revelation from God, the revelation of God. So we, we speak broadly in theology of, of two types of revelation. There is special revelation and general revelation. Special revelation is the Bible. It is God's act of speaking. It, it, special revelation also includes God speaking to the prophets, think Old Testament, they, like Amos or Isaiah. God gives special revelation to them. They write it down, and then that's preserved for us today, and we have the Bible. There's Jesus's words. Special revelation. But beyond that, there is also general revelation. General revelation is truth about God that is revealed in the light of nature, such as the knowledge of God written on the heart to the conscience. The history of providence is available as well, available to all. It's called general revelation, not special revelation, because this is available to all people, not just those who have special access to it, such as one who happens to hold this book in his or her hands. So our confession of faith, the 1689, as well as the Westminster, and basically every other Reformed confession, says something like this, in, typically in chapter 1. It says, The Holy Scriptures are the only sufficient, certain, and infallible standard of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. The light of nature and the works of creation providence so clearly demonstrate the goodness, wisdom, and power of God that people are left without excuse. So that's describing special revelation and general revelation. However, these demonstrations are not sufficient to give the knowledge of God and his will that is necessary for salvation. What does Romans 1 teach us about God? It tells us that creation, well, Psalm 19, it tells us that creation declares the glory of God, that the world that God has made tells us that God exists and that he is powerful. It doesn't tell us how to be saved, but it tells us that God is and he is powerful and that means you're in trouble. 
the confession goes on. Therefore, the Lord was pleased at different times and in various ways to reveal himself and to declare his will to his church, to preserve and propagate the truth better and to establish and comfort the church with greater certainty against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan in the world. The Lord put this revelation completely in writing. Therefore, the Holy Scriptures are absolutely necessary because God's former ways of revealing his will to his people have now ceased. Those those subjective mystical feelings that you have, that's not God speaking to you. It could be any number of other things. It, on its highest possible potential is it could be perhaps God leading you. But you should not say, God spoke to me and told me to do this thing or that thing. Why? Well, if we just counted those and logged those, if you took an honest and wrote down an honest journal of these things, you would find that many, many, many of them end up being false. So things that you think God told you, God told me that I'm supposed to marry this person. Well, it doesn't end up happening. So then what was it? It wasn't God. God may perhaps lead you through a subjective impression. He certainly leads you through objective providences. If you're trying to go to church this morning, you step out of your house and you can't go because the cops say, sorry, this is all blocked. And you say, is there another way? And they say, no. Well, guess what? That means God stopped you from going today because there is no way forward but you read God's providence backwards. You look at it after it's happened and see, okay, this is what God did. So we have general revelation and special revelation. The cross is the ultimate wisdom of God. The cross is not the wisdom of this world. The cross is the wisdom of God and the cross is not the wisdom of this world. The wisdom of this world is not the wisdom of God. The cross is not the wisdom of this world. So, what are the implications of this? What is our resolution based on these things? If, verse 18 says, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It is the wisdom of God. What should we do on that basis? Well, we should preach the cross, because that's the power and the wisdom. In every way, in every text, we should preach Christ. So we should ask this question, which is, what is your view of Christ? What is your view of the cross? What do you think of the work of Jesus, who he is and what he did? Do you recognize that the cross is the defining mark of Jesus's person and work? that all those passages of the entire Bible are all leading to or pointing to or in some way referencing or getting to Jesus. So as we said in point one, do you like the moral teachings of Jesus, but you despise his bloody cross? Do you like the idea of turning the other cheek, but you reject the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement? It is important for you to recognize that every step that Jesus took in his life was for a certain purpose. 
And that purpose is described in verses like Luke 9.51, which say that he set his face towards Jerusalem. Well, why? What is that about? Well, it's because he was going to Jerusalem. And the reason why he was going to Jerusalem, the reason he set his face to Jerusalem was because it was appointed for him to die and to rise there. So every diaper change of Jesus as an infant was for the purpose of him someday going to the cross. Every meal that he ate as a toddler, as a five-year-old, as a 10-year-old, as a teenager, all of those things were for that purpose of eventually getting to that place at age 33 where he would die. Every one of Jesus' miracles and sermons and actions, everything he ever did was designed for this purpose to lead to that end. It was for the purpose of verifying himself as the Messiah, to fulfill his role required and stated beforehand by biblical prophecy. This is the wisdom of God, the preaching of Christ, the preaching of the cross, and this is the foolishness of the world or that the world views as foolishness. The foolishness of the cross does not make sense compared to worldly wisdom. How do worldly wise people think in terms of conquest? If you're going to do a thing, you're going to release a product, you're going to spread a message, you're going to build a brand, how are you going to do that? The cross doesn't make sense. How are you going to spread a religion? The cross doesn't make sense. What does make sense? Well, a lot of things make more sense than the cross, such as the sword. We conquer through threats, through intimidation, through armies, through weapons. Jihad makes much more sense than the cross. Like, you're going to die? No. No, you convert or I'll kill you. That's the way worldly wisdom thinks. Political pressure makes more sense. You convert or else I'll take away your ability to vote. You convert or else I'll raise your taxes. You convert or else I'll make you an outcast in society. That makes more sense than saying, hey, our God was crucified for his enemies. What else makes more sense than the cross? Well, activism makes more sense. Agitation makes more sense. Riding in the streets, throwing bricks through buildings, intimidating business owners to get them to write a pledge of allegiance to you in spray paint on the front of their building in hopes that you won't torch their business, such as Black Lives Matter. That makes more sense than the cross. What else makes more sense than the cross? Well, money. (laughs) Fundraising makes more sense. Hey, if we're going to do this thing, all we need is several billion dollars. And then we can buy everything. We could pay people to spread this message, whether or not they believe in it. We can hire protesters. We We can just make this thing happen with money. What else makes more sense than the cross? Well, mass media campaigns make a lot more sense than the cross. 
We'll just rebrand Jesus. We'll rebrand the Christian religion. We'll revoice it, if you will. We'll, We'll tell people, hey, Jesus gets you. He gets us. Isn't that nice? He accepts you just as you are. With no concern for whether or not you have him, but just know you, you're all good. You're, you're a beautiful snowflake as you are. And Jesus understands. Beyond mass media campaigns, we also have popularity contests. Well, what would really make sense to convert a lot of people to our cause? Well, let's get some professional athletes to start wearing our brands. Let's get some celebrities to start wearing our clothes. Let's get pictures of them wearing our brands and our clothes and all those things. We'll put them on billboards. And so if we could just get Justin Bieber to become a Christian, and then we'll put pictures of him on billboards with words like, I'm a Christian, so you can be too. That makes more sense. Books like How to Win Friends and Influence People make more sense. Flattery makes more sense than the cross. Praising people, affirming people, complimenting them in ways that, you know, you you try to make it sound real. Charm makes more sense. Physical beauty makes more sense. Hey, we're looking for a certain type of person that has a certain look because we want our brand our religion to have this aesthetically pleasing look as far as the facial structures of the people that we allow on stage that makes more sense than a bloody cross a savior whose face was so marred it was beyond human recognition What else makes more sense than the cross? Well, strong leadership makes more sense. And strong leadership does make more sense. You know, you need strong leaders. You need visionary leaders who can cast vision and compel people through their powerful oratory, through their rhetoric, through their speech. And that's what this whole paragraph is about. Because the Greeks loved that sort of thing. They loved the powerful, dynamic speakers. I once heard a chapel speaker in seminary, I think it was 2016 probably. Um, He was, in every sense of the word, he was a pulpiteer. Uh, A pulpiteer is sort of an older expression used for someone who's a powerful preacher. And after that sermon from this this person, I, I was really like hyped up. And I went and told one of my friends, hey, you gotta hear this sermon, it was incredible. And he's like, oh, what was it about? And I paused like a deer caught in the headlights because frankly, I have no idea what it was about. I don't remember a thing the guy said except that it was powerful. It had the high highs and the low lows and the, 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 the pausing and the spacing and the timing, the phraseology and the parallelism and the structure of the sermon. And it was compelling, but I don't have a clue what he actually said. And I think I even took notes. What makes sense in the, in the mind of the world? Well, powerful oratory is a good thing to do. But in human wisdom, what doesn't make sense is the idea of the cross. That your powerful leader is not going to actually look very good. There's nothing beautiful about him. He's going to grow up in a humble, small town that's not regarded as an important place 
He's going to pick up a ragtag band of followers from every sort of profession. And he's going to die on the cross, the most brutal, barbaric, horrible way of death, reserved only for the worst of the worst. That doesn't make sense. The world views that as foolishness. But for us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It is the wisdom of God. So if you would seek out help, you're looking for wisdom, and you want to seek the wisdom of this world, I would ask you, have you considered the wisdom from God first? There's more confusion today, as in like March, what, 19th, 2023, around the concepts of the sufficiency of Scripture and Sola Scriptura and all of those types of words. There's more confusion around those categories today than there has ever been in my last 15 to 20 years of thinking about theology. These doctrines do not, sola scriptura is not solo scriptura. Uh, The sufficiency of scripture doesn't mean Bible alone. None of those things are what it actually is referring to. It doesn't mean that the only truth that is true is in the Bible, and it doesn't mean that you can't know anything unless you're a Christian. All of those are just nonsense. There is truth outside the Bible. Two plus two equals four, and the Bible doesn't tell us that. But God owns that truth because that is that, that comes from general revelation. That comes from the, the correspondence theory of truth. Truth is that which pertains to reality. It's realism, not idealism. So the Bible doesn't tell you how to fix a flat tire, how to change your oil, how to swipe a metro card. None of those things are contained in the Bible. But there are a lot of things that are contained in the Bible. And so if you're going to seek out wisdom and you feel compelled to seek wisdom from this world, I would ask you, have you considered the wisdom of God first? I'm not saying there is no wisdom in this world. The book of general revelation is truly God's revelation, but much of this world's wisdom is completely unfiltered and unexamined and rather is accepted at face value, even though these things might be merely theories. And these theories may straight up contradict the wisdom of God. These may be versions of truth which do not correspond to reality. But instead, truth does correspond to reality. As far as philosophies go, Aristotle's realism is quite a bit more godly, if you want to use that word, than Plato's idealism. But where do we see some of these things take place practically? Consider counseling methods which assume that man is by nature good. Methods of therapy and therapists that assume that man is by nature good. Your problem is not you. Your problem is your circumstances. You're a victim of your environment. And if that environment can be managed closely enough, then this child will grow up like Mary Poppins. Practically perfect in every way. That is not from God. That is from the father of lies. And frankly, that type of thinking exists both in the secular 
therapeutic world and also, frankly, in some aspects of fundamentalism, where they function as though sin is simply out there, and if we can separate from it enough, we can be pure and holy and untouched by the sinfulness of the world, by just coming away enough, by being far enough removed from it, but they forget that once you separate again and again and again, you still have you with you. And you do have a sin nature. The Bible teaches us that in Adam all sinned, and that includes you. The Bible teaches us that all people are born sinners. They are conceived in iniquity. When the sperm hits the egg, boom, you have a sinner. Why? Because that's the descendant of Adam, a life that has begun. This sin pervades every aspect of our humanity. That's what we call the doctrine of total depravity. There's none righteous, no, not one. So not only does it impact every aspect of our humanity, but it impacts every person in every aspect of their humanity. Everything about us is tainted or affected by sin. This does not mean each one of us is is as bad as could possibly be. Of course not. Hitler could have killed one more Jew. But it means that sin pervades every aspect of us. So this means, yes, little children do, in fact, sin. They throw tantrums which are sinful. The age of accountability is similar to the Pelagian doctrine that men are born neutral and then don't become sinners until later on, at at a later time when they do sin. This is not biblical. What is the wisdom of God? What is the power of God? What is the way of redemption? What is the way of salvation? Well, your righteousness is not through these theories, these therapies, these philosophies. Righteousness does not come through critical race theory, through ESG, through DEI, through SEL. Those are critical race theory, environmental, social governance, diversity, equity, inclusion, social, emotional learning, which are basically four different versions of the same mindset, the same philosophy, which is rooted in a Marxist way of thinking. These are all alternate religions that are actually repackaged versions of the same religion, which is, in effect, a Marxist religious system which attempts to usher in the utopia through what effectively amounts to voodoo, sorcery, witchcraft, hermeticism, or other ancient mystery religions. These things can actually be traced back to the ancient mystery religions of stuff they were doing in Egypt back in 4,000 years ago. where you're just dealing with things that aren't real. You're making up philosophies, making up mystery religions and practices that if you do this thing, then the gods will be pleased with you. Which brings us into our third and final point. Because Jesus is the power and wisdom of God, he deserves all glory. Because the cross is the power and wisdom of God, he, Jesus, the one who died on that cross, deserves all glory. If these things are not so, then it makes sense that you should get some glory, that you should get some praise, that you should be affirmed. But if these things are the case, and they are, then that means that Jesus is the one who gets the glory. Now, this loops back into the previous paragraph, verse 26. See your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, 
Not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of this world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of this world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of this world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. The things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. That no flesh should glory in his presence. You see, if our Christian religion was based on getting the best and brightest and, and sort of like a you know, pre-woke college entrance exam where it was based on having the best and brightest, not about fulfilling some agenda. But if it was really based on having the best and brightest, then Christianity would be like, hey, are you smart enough? We have an uh, IQ test in order to get into this church. Oh, sorry, you're a little overweight. You can't come in here. You're not very good looking? Sorry, you also can't come in here. Wait, who are your parents? What did they do? Sorry, you can't come in here either. How rich are they? <laughs> you don't make it either. There would be all of these systems if this religion was based on worldly wisdom. But because it is based on Christ, the wisdom and power of God, that means that your calling to Christ has nothing to do with who you are according to the flesh, is verse 26. So if you happen to come from a place where maybe your ancestors are mighty or noble, be thankful and humbled because not many of those people are called. But rather, God often chooses the weak the frail, the insignificant, the base things of this world, the people who are despised, God often calls and chooses in order to bring to nothing the things that are. This is part of why the Bible says it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And by hard, he means impossible. Because that's what the people he was corresponding with said, well, then how is this going to happen? And he said, with man, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible, which doesn't mean you can hike the mountain. It means you can be saved through God's plan, which is the cross. And what happens when this is your reality means it leads us to verse 29, that no flesh would glory in his presence. So when you come before him, you are in the presence of God and you are granted access to heaven, you're not the one getting the praise. You're not granted entrance into heaven because you were smarter than all the rest. or Because you gave more, because you were prettier. No, none of those things matter. None of those things will get you in. It says, verse 30, but of him you are in Christ Jesus. Salvation is the work of God and God alone. It is God's doing that puts you in Christ. Jesus became for us wisdom from God. Jesus went from being in your mind in salvation. Jesus goes from being just another person, just another mark on a timeline of history. Jesus goes from that, which is relatively insignificant, going from that to the wisdom from God. Jesus being the wisdom of God. Jesus being your righteousness. Jesus being your sanctification as well. Jesus being your redemption. 
And what is the point of all of this? The point of all of this is that it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. The idea of a proud Christian, a proud reformed Christian, these are all contradictions in terms. So, this is the end of my message. Let's pray, and then we have two songs, one of which is new for us, and it is tied to this theme. So let's pray. Lord God, we ask for your help, for your instruction, that you would cause us to see Christ lifted up, to see that the philosophies and wisdom of this world is nothing, that it when it contradicts your word, that we should ignore it and disregard it. Help us to be firmly rooted and grounded in your word and the wisdom of God, the power of God, which is Christ crucified, risen and coming again. Help us to shape all of our thinking, all of our lives around this great reality. Jesus died for me. Jesus rose for me. In him I live. And that's it. I pray that you would humble the proud and that you would lift up the lowly, that they would see this as their greatest reality. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.